This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. We're doing the B-side today, and we're going to talk about sexuality. Helen, <laughs> tell us about the theory of sexuality. Right, okay, so as I am not I am not a psychoanalyst, by the way. I just enjoy psychoanalytic theory, so don't quote me on this. <laughs> but, okay, if I have it correctly, if I have it correctly, a sexual fantasy comes about when... Um, as, as a young child sort of entering into language, and I think I said on the A side, um, you know, this is all sexual, human sexuality operates on like very, very basic, like toddler logic. So this is why it's sort of part of the reason it's so ridiculous and so weirdly symbolic and scatological and involves, you know, pretend, etc. cetera. Um, but basically we, at a certain point, we separated from our, our mother and, you know, we aren't essential beings you know we are we are constructed beings we are constructed by language and so we don't have like inherent desires we have inherent needs we have inherent you know instincts and we have inherent you know requirements of safety and of recognition and all this kind of stuff and of food um but at a certain point we've become separated from our our mother we we don't know who we are we don't know what we are and we don't know what we are for the other so at a certain point we start to try to work out what we believe evokes the desire of the other. So we try to sort of read often the maternal desire and read what we believe. And this is a way sort of, of order, ordering like an essential kind of position in the world, part of how we start to develop subjectivity and position ourselves in this chaosmos is like, what are we for this other? And what do we evoke in terms of desire for this other? So sexuality is what we believe as a this child is what our mother desires of us to a certain extent and then this marks our subjectivity entirely so often you know the sort of like tertiary readers of freud that we have now the sort of woke shit get this stuff back to front because it's it's all about sex blah 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 sex is not a thing our fantasy and fetish is a papering over of a, of like antagonism as such and a nothing and it's to do with positioning ourselves in a nothing, as nothings. But it does mark, and it, it's not like, again, and I was saying on the other side, like sex is this really difficult thing to talk about. I think Nina and I were talking about like music the other day and how you can't talk about music. Like sex is so difficult to talk about because it's not a thing. And everybody's sexuality is different. So it's not like, okay, a person is turned on by... <laughs> so like, one of the things that's really difficult, and a psychoanalyst friend was saying this to me, is that... Nobody wants to admit their desire because it's so, their fantasy, because it's so charged. When you reveal your fantasy to another person, it's like, what? Doesn't matter. It's not embarrassing because it doesn't have that charge to it. But nobody wants to admit their desire. So their fantasy. So it's really hard to sort of get a kind of like mapping of desire, of fantasy because like nobody wants to admit it. But, but when you, I have got people out of my own curiosity to, to tell me this. And then it does actually, it's quite interesting. It does like say a lot about them and about how arbitrarily they are sort of subjectively positioned in the world. And it relates to what you believe your mother, you, you need to evoke in your mother, what you need to, how you need to be or what it is about you that will get you her desire. And it's quite complicated. I had a, about a three-hour conversation with a friend about this at the weekend, trying to get to the bottom of this because it's really slippery and really difficult. Because it's not—it's it, not about the. F so, for instance, somebody's sexuality. Often, people are into say 
sadomasochism is about humiliation but but their their sexual the, the picture so the setting of their sexual fantasy might be anything to do with restraint so you might you know it might look like it's one thing but actually the dynamic beneath it is their mother they felt that their mother enjoyed humiliating them as a child or that in order to evoke their mum's desire they they need to be in this position of humiliation if that makes sense so it's not like it's not like the other thing with with metaphor in terms of symptom and sexuality is it's not like a one-to-one mapping which is why you can do like years and years of psychoanalysis although it's interesting as well because I kind of get the impression a friend of mine has some like personal issues at the moment I spoke to her for an hour and a half the other day and it was like I'm not a psychoanalyst at all but it was really obvious what the dynamic at play was within that first conversation and often you'll turn up at bank therapy and it's like so obvious what the picture is the whole dynamic to your analyst within like the first hour and then it's just like years of like trying to get you to sort of come to terms with it but you can't sort of cheat your way or just intellectualize your way to to understanding the dynamics it takes like a long kind of time and you know we're sort of protected against it psychologically for so many different reasons but the point being is like a is an a in terms of the metaphors so you know it's about a dynamic beneath the the um the thing, you know, let's say women wearing boots or something, but also, you know, often it's to do with lower parts of limbs when it's, a, you know, a fetish, because it's like what you see before you look up and you see women's private parts, whatever. But it's again, it's like from this sort of Tom and Jerry perspective of a child, you know, so again, everybody's sexuality is different. There are kind of like sort of similarities and sort of buckets because of course we go through similar things, you know, we have similar, we all have the same basic needs as babies. We are all entering into language. You know, if we grow up and obviously sexual, sexual, sexual patterns change as familial relationships change. So, you know, more people are autistic now, for instance, which is people are starting to theorize a fourth subject type or category. And your subject type or category does relate to everything else. So, you know, our material conditions of where we were born and grew up do, do affect our sexuality and obviously you know things like the trans issue speaks a lot to the way society has changed you know so more people maybe are trans now than they used to be well maybe I mean I don't know maybe not but um yeah so so we all go through similar things which is why a lot of our sexual fantasies take on similar symbolic frames do you think or is the idea that you know people have like a fundamental fantasy like do that is there like a almost like a single thing that then they might have variations upon, but it's like one thing or not? I think so. I mean, again, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not like trained in anything and this is just like, so I'm probably giving like a really sparse picture, but the dynamic does still play out in other things. Like for instance, a lot of women's fantasy, and this is a kind of, I like a, a feminist really took against a uh, feminist quote unquote, because I actually think this perspective is profoundly sexist. Um, took against a film I made about um, desire because it kind of took this notion that a lot of women desire to be desired, like that is their sexual fantasy is to be desired, you know? And so this whole thing of like, oh, but she's just objectified, but it's like, well, this woman's desire is to be object A, is to be the thing that evokes the desire for a man. And so it's much more transitory. It's not about like some, some concrete fantasy in the way that like a man's domination or women can be dominating or whatever. But that, you know, they desire, they desire to be the object for the other. So that's totally legitimate as well. And it is, I think, sexist not to admit the ambivalence of female, female sexuality and that lots of men and lots of women desire to be desired. And that's their desire. Mm. But yeah. 
<laughs> but the other thing is it's not neutral, right? Like I was saying that when we hear other people's sexual fantasy, it's not as embarrassing as when we might expose to have a conversation about it. And when it's like comes to yourself, it's like really difficult to say. It's like, oh my God, I can't say that. But but at the same time, it is charged. And so part of the thing, obviously, we have a right-wing reaction uh, to things like the outward expression of sexuality in, in things like you know, the trans experience, which because it is more explicitly to do with sexuality in a way that like lots of things are to do with sexuality, but it's very explicitly and it's on the surface, it can be quite traumatizing for people because sex is not neutral. You know, sex is about covering over, you know, it's in place as a, as a, as a sort of like seal against something that is extremely traumatic. So it's, yeah, not, it's never, it's never neutral, you know, and it's not just some silly, like, oh, people in history were so stupid because they repressed sexuality. It's like, mm. also at the same time, as I was saying before, like repression can evoke sexuality. So Peter always says that the purity ring was a technology to, at a time in the nineties when all sexuality was on the surface, it was this genius uh, way to evoke and create desire when desire was obliterated because everything is just there and out there. So it's like quite clever. Mm. And you only want what you can't have. And the wanting is really all that there is, you know. So I, I notice a lot of emphasis on mothers in this. And of course, the other theme we considered doing this week was a, a mother's theme. We almost did that. And then we pivoted from there to desire. And so there, there, these two concepts are very clearly interlinked. And I kind of wonder, if we had done the mother's theme, what would we have what would we have talked about? I think mother the mother theme is like so much to say about motherhood. I it was funny because like I grew up on Armored of our films. Like it's how I got into film. I used to like watch every single one of his films like endless times. I don't know why I love it so much. But all about my mother it was only when watching it in the context of this I was like, oh God, it's really strong. You know, I always in my mind, they're like, oh, that's so funny and so like surreal and so like, ha ha ha. And then it was like, oh God, this is like, you know, I always think like Beach Boy songs, they're like profoundly sad at the same time as being like, oh, this is California and so happy. You know, sometimes these things that you think are like so joyous and, joyous and lovely when you actually watch them, I was like, this is like way too intense. <laughs> um, but I think the motherhood question you know, and what feminism gets right is that motherhood, well, motherhood is a quote-unquote issue, right? It's like an uncontainable issue. It's the eruption from nothing of each of us, which is a really difficult thing to, and it's and it's the burden of it is placed on one sex. Obviously, things are changing, but like, um, yeah, it's it's really charged. And, and so that we also have this ambivalent thing of we both love and hate our mothers because they are from whence we came. And do we really want to be alive all the time? Not really. <laughs> Thank you. you know. <laughs> Thank you for inflicting this upon me. Um, but there is a lot of ambivalence there. And, and um, I think that because it's often repressed, because we love our mothers, our mothers have Mother's Day, our mothers are caring, our mothers are saints, our mothers sacrifice everything of themselves for us. We can't admit, or we don't even want to admit, it's not even like a societal thing, but it's too painful for us to even admit because that would often touch on the fact that we are ambivalent about being alive in the first place. How much we, as much as we love our mothers, hate our mothers. Yeah, so my mother has a way of dealing with this. So my mother nearly died when she had me. She had a terrible hemorrhage and um, she didn't bond with me at all. She couldn't breastfeed. Like we were separated for 
ages in the beginning. I was in an incubator and she was had to have a blood transfusion and everything and lots of drugs so she couldn't breastfeed. And so she was she's very, very, very sick. And um she would constantly sort of bring up this <laughs> and I you know, that was born by cesarean section. I was very little and, you know, it was a, a sort of, you know, touch and go sort of thing, right? And for both of us, right? Like you know, whatever. If she hadn't been in hospital or, or a particular you know, if someone hadn't kind of realised what was happening, like, you know, we both would have died. And and she she brought this up a lot when I was a child. She would say, like, uh well, you nearly killed me. You know, and she would make a joke about it, like constantly, like whenever she was sort of, I don't know, she would say it and she's quite a wry person and she would sort of occasionally say this, well, you nearly killed me. And so I had to work out a sort of witty answer to this because it was like, well, that's horrible. You know, that's, that's, that's terrible. Like, that's like the worst thing. <laughs> like, and so I would have to come up with all these sort of, almost, well, I guess they were philosophical, like answers to the conundrum presented by the fact of her you know, me having nearly killed her whilst also not being responsible for it or not being aware of having done this terrible act, you know, and of course she's joking about my intentionality. So I would always come up with these sorts of like, uh, yes, but you're the one who wanted to have me. And if you hadn't wanted to have me and if you hadn't had sex with dad, like, you know, then there wouldn't be an issue and I wouldn't have nearly killed you. And, you know, so it would have to go like back and back and back into all these sorts of stories of like, you know, <laughs> how how it wasn't my fault. Um, <laughs> but I think it did it did have some very perverse consequences in terms of like questions of guilt and, you know, and I, I, you know, and I think probably there is, you know, very strange and singular things that, you know, regardless of the circumstances of one's birth, that perhaps like mothers and daughters have particular aspects to their relationship, which are different from mothers and sons, um, n- not to generalize too, too awfully, but th- th- I think there are sort of, you know, especially, I don't know how to put it. It's like, I think the the female line is often sort of on the side of like suffering in some ways. And like some of the things that are kind of passed down are like guilt and suffering and blame. And and the first thing that sort of comes to mind when you say the word mother is blame, <laughs> um, which is very harsh. And I actually do have a nice relationship with my mother. Like she's, you know, I, I speak to her every week. I see her quite often. And, you know, actually I, I see her as a, as a person first and foremost, you know, I, I, I actually, and, and one of the ways I, I could do this, I think, was to understand the decisions that she made in her life. So I understand, I have come to understand her as a as a person who made particular decisions for particular reasons. And because I can understand the reasons why she made these decisions, I feel um, lovingly towards her. Like I feel warmly towards her, you know, because I can understand her. And perhaps it's sort of reason that somehow functions here to to mask these other questions of lack and splitting and or whatever that are necessary in some ways but it but it's interesting having not been close to my mother you know and my, my mother didn't bond with me and she had to be taken away because she wanted to kill me because I would never sleep because I only slept for two hours a night and you know for, for like the, basically the whole of my childhood which was extremely difficult for somebody who's trying to go to sleep so I was always awake and everyone was always asleep and I had huge 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 sleep issues the whole the whole of my childhood and early adulthood and which I don't have now interestingly but you know so she you know she really does have these explicit 
violent desires towards me, right? And she, she, you know, and and she does feel on some level that I try to kill her, even though she knows that this is an irrational (laughs) claim and it couldn't possibly be my fault. But at the same time, part of her does want to blame me for this. You know, and I and it's it's very very interesting to think about strategies that people come up with to to deal with these things, and I, I think a lot of them are very humorous. You know, oh, do you remember that time? You know, you tried to kill me, or you know, and that's that's kind of all you can do. And and I don't know. To I think to get distance from this person and to think, on the one hand, it's both contingent but also very necessary and beautiful that it was this woman who's my mother. You know in all of her sameness and difference. And I don't know, it's nice. <laughs> no, I think that's the thing. It's like you you are because of the contingency and the randomness and everything that happened. Like you, your whole subjectivity is generated by these like very early dynamics and experiences. And then what we can do is we're sort of like condemned to this and we're condemned to finding ways to positively tarry with them. And that, that, that the ways that we positively tarry with them are our best traits, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, just to follow up, sorry not to dominate too much, but like it's, it's just interesting in terms of how, let's say, the mother maps onto how one feels about the female sex in general. Like, I think about this quite a lot, like... You know, so my dad basically was look, looked after me, and I have I have an absolutely loving, very close relationship with my dad, right? And I was always much closer to my dad, and my mum was always much closer to my brother. And you know, my dad literally fed me and did all that, all of that, looked after me basically when my mother couldn't. So I think for that reason and for many others, we we are very, very, very sympathetic and compatible, and share an interest in music and and and. Somehow, though, I do think that this proximity to my father has played out in terms of how I feel about men and women in general, right? Like, I feel much more comfortable with men in general. Like, I don't feel... Like, with women, I often feel this um, very deep anxiety that I will upset them somehow, and that this is the worst thing you can do, is to upset a woman, because it's like, I upset my mom, and somehow all women are my, my mother. So even though I know that's not true, there's some really deep way in which men and women come to, in a way, stand in at least in part for the women who are proximate to you. And, you know, having close relationships with women where it's obvious, for example, that they've thought of me as their sister or something like this, and they've played out various dynamics that they've had with their sister with me, you know, and it only becomes clear later that this is what they're doing. And I, I do, it's it's the kind of how these family structures map onto everyone we encounter in the world that I find, I find this really fascinating. And I guess it's the, you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk, you know, really criticise the Oedipal model, the fact that we map every structure in, in an Oedipal way. And they say like, no, we, that can't be correct. But actually, I wonder if we, we don't do that, actually, in all honesty. And I've thought about this a lot, you know, and it sounds, it sounds horrible what I'm saying. It sounds terrible. Like what kind of person runs around thinking of everyone they meet as like a, an, a version of their mother? But, but in a way, I do think it's more honest to sort of admit that there is that aspect. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's totally logical if you understand the way in which human subjectivity derives because I think the problem with the Deleuze and Qatari model is that there's some kind of essentialism on the other side of it it's like no nature is nurture you know and of course like those early experiences of course are going to like mark us and it's you know the dynamic plays out endlessly and it is when you sort of you know eventually 
sounds like you have like quite a clear grip on it, like have a, have a grip on, <laughs> on this dynamic. Things become quite, it's quite amazing, actually. And, you know, as we were saying before, like, I think we said this last week, like what you think others think of you is what you really think of it yourself. And, you know, when you're criticised only, and, you know, we're talking about, I think we talked about the Oswald Mosley's son, who um, his sexual fetish was to do with Nazis and he was sort of cancelled for it. But he was like, what is my sexual fetish? Sorry, like I deal with this experience mm-hmm. in this way. Um but that basically you can only be offended when it touches on some kind of like primordial, you know, way you experience the world. And I was saying, you know, we were talking about like the, the abusive superego and often like, so for instance, I had this experience where somebody told me that like they thought I should have done more preparation for something. And it was to do with the fact that they thought like maybe five minutes I could have like, there was one specific document they wanted that I actually never used when I, and I did so much. And I, I, that was something that I always work against. I like work, prepare way too much. And it like, but it touched on me in such a way that I was like, right, this is really to do with a dynamic that's much more primordial that I feel about myself than it is to do with anything. And so you, one can't help but, but, but do it. Um, but one can when it's conscious, more conscious, you know, overcome it to a certain yeah. extent well can one become unoffendable this is an interesting question like if like it's the know thyself right so if if you know that you're like sensitive on these issues or these particular things or you have these weaknesses it's like it's kind of you're i don't know like nothing can really hurt you i think potentially or things I mean, can hurt you less but, transcendently you know yeah or it can be funny and things like that exactly yeah and this is the thing with the comedians, you know, are comedians the greatest philosophers ever because they have turned their their failings into, into something generative, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I've been thinking about this and thinking about how I relate to my mother, as you might expect. And you know, I think my mother and I very much share a desire to control things and therefore tend to get in each other's way a lot. Of course, I have to respect her because she wants what I want, which is to be in charge of what happens and for things to go exactly the way she envisions. She wants the same thing that I want. (laughs) It's just she wants her version of it, and I want my version of it, and very often the two are not the same. So I think when I was a kid, and I remember actually uh, when I was 10, 11, 12, I had a a little bit of a kind of horror of of puberty because I I didn't want to be in a position of wanting someone around who would control what I was doing. I wanted to be an adult so that I could make my own decisions and not have to listen to my mother. And I didn't want to be in a position of wanting someone around who would again get in my way and tell me what to do. So when I was a kid, I I, I remember very much not wanting to like girls because I didn't want to be in a position where somebody else would run my life uh, or tell me what to do. And, and I was very, very uh, stubborn. I refused to eat stuff that my mother wanted me to eat just so that I could, I think when I was a kid, just so that I could have that and be in charge of what I eat. And she couldn't have that. She couldn't tell me what to eat. And I'd lose weight until she would give up. Uh, and I, I remember... I always wanted to wear shorts to school just because she wouldn't let me. And we ended up with a rule that it had to be 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is something like 12 or 13 Celsius outside before I could um, 
you know, before I could wear shorts. And my dad had to measure the temperature with a, a thermostat that we agreed was a neutral thermostat in the morning to decide whether or not I could wear shorts. And then when I got to high school and she finally relented and said that I was too old for her to tell me uh, what, what to wear, I wore shorts for three years in a row every day just because she didn't let me. Uh, and now I could. So I, I remember when I was a kid very much not wanting to like girls and not wanting to be involved with them because I didn't want that dynamic ever again. I wanted to get out of it and not be stuck in it. And I think the thing that changed for me uh, over time is that you know I used to hang out with my brother a lot because my mother would not really play with me very much uh, beyond when I was very young. She just, the kinds of stuff I like to play, she always tended to not really want to play. And uh, and my brother, my younger brother, became the person I played with all the time. And as he got older, he branched out and did other things. And he didn't want to play with me anymore. So I didn't really have anybody to play with. I didn't really have a whole lot of friends at the time. I was, you know, 11, 12. The friends I did have, you know, you couldn't, it, it was a suburb in Indiana. The only way you could go anywhere is if your parents would drive you and very often their parents wouldn't drive them places. So we couldn't really hang out very much. So if you didn't have somebody who lived in your house who wanted to play with you, you couldn't really play very much with anybody. And so as my brother kind of outgrew playing with me, I think I, I ended up kind of wanting to be with a woman who would do a lot of the things that my brother did with me that he wouldn't do anymore. And so that became my kind of model of the sort of person I wanted to date. I wanted to date someone who would play with me like my brother had stopped doing and who would play with me better than my brother played with me, who would be the, the person that I wanted my brother to be. I wanted my brother to be someone who would play all my games in my way and do, and do it the way that I wanted to do it. And all of that eventually caused him to not want to play with me because he wanted to play different games in different ways and I wouldn't let him. I would decide how the game was going to go and what the rules were going to be, and he'd have to be stuck in it. And if he wanted something different, he, the only way he could get it was by refusing to play with me until I agreed to change the rules for him. He'd have to go on strike. So I think it was uh, emancipatory for him to get out from under me, frankly. Uh, and I, I think that for me, that what I wanted in a relationship was someone who would do what I wanted my brother to do in the way that he never would do it. And that's how I was able to reconcile myself uh, with the idea of dating people and having romantic feelings for people, which I think otherwise I wouldn't have done. And my brother, what I've noticed with him is he doesn't have a whole lot of romantic relationships. And I wonder if he still relates to the concept the way I did uh, when I was younger. I do want to play the psychoanalyst. <laughs> there are two things that you said that I maybe, should I say? Maybe I'll say. Should I say? I don't know. It's interesting because symbolically short trousers, right? In in England, like we say, he's still in short trousers. It's like up to a certain age. So people ask like, why is Prince George always in shorts? Well, because before you were sent to school, you have to, you know, the English little boys have to wear shorts, you know? So shorts are like, they're, they're like, they're pre-tween, you know? They're sort of like, you have, you're still Master George. You are not, you know, an adult yet. And I think uh, Prince George wore sh trousers for the first time in public, maybe at the at the <laughs> European Cup. But also, you said um, that it was your brother. It was good that he got out from under you. So <laughs> just saying that that's like a kind of <laughs> maybe it's true that 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 therefore then in the females that you look to, it is a sort of recreation of a similar thing. 
So I, I can't I'm, help but hearing things. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. My thought when Benjamin was speaking was, I wonder which games Benjamin wanted to play. <laughs> that was my thought. I was like, I was like, what? I wonder what Benjamin, the young Benjamin's favorite game was. <laughs> oh, I made up all kinds of stuff. We had this playroom and I would build these cities. I'd build these whole complex uh, societies and I would make my brother be a person who lived in the society. <laughs> so he would have to follow all of the rules that I had and, and he'd have to interact with all of the institutions and structures I created. And uh, he would have to try to find his way through and various people in the game would make his life difficult in all sorts of ways and he'd have to deal with it in some way. <laughs> he'd have to come up with a way to deal with all of the all of the characters and was, institutions. I'd was make. it was it like a a sort of communist dystopia that you uh, created? Or oh, they were, was you know, it? they were all different was... kinds. You know, sometimes I'd try to make a nice city, other times a not so nice one. I remember one day, for a whole day, we played a game called Iraq where he had to be a person who lived in Baghdad and he had to figure out how to navigate sectarian conflict. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah. I, I just, I made up all kinds I of really stuff. I really want to show you something. It was so funny. Um, somebody created this uh, Instagram, which was an account with screenshots of very funny things, messages that people sent each other on Debop. And I want to see if I can find it, but I don't know how long ago I took the screenshot, but basically it was like... Um, you know, the person, it was just so funnily phrased, but it was about how the person who bought these things was like, thank you, the leggings were fantastic and thank you so much for sending them in time. Unfortunately, I've decided to give you a one-star review, not for any reason other than, unfortunately in life, we live in a world that is very unfair and arbitrary. And so I'm doing you a favor that you have to, you know, get used to overcoming difficult. It was, but it was so funnily put and it was a serious <laughs> thing, you know, I was like, oh my God, amazing. Oh, I wish I could find it. I wish I could. If I find it, I'll, I'll say it. But um, too many screenshots on my phone. But the children's games are hilarious. One, one ex of mine um, would say about how, what his older sister, and it's often, you know, an older sister with a, with a younger brother, the kind of games that she and her friends would play with him and, and use him as a sort of pawn in their games. And it's like, it's all highly, you know, sig symbolic and significant, you know. <laughs> Well, then there were all the games my brother just wouldn't play with me because my brother always liked a certain amount of action and adventure. You know, he liked to play games with guns or cars or things that moved around. And, and so he wouldn't play all kinds of strategy games with me. He hated basketball because he was much shorter than me. So he would never do anything involving any of that. So always, if I can get uh, any, any girl I'm dating to engage with basketball in any way, I'm so pleased with myself. <laughs> In any way, go to a game, watch a game, anything to do with basketball, I'm always so pleased with myself. I love the idea that your ideal girl is basically your brother and who will do like boy things with you. I mean, it's actually really sweet. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's so funny given, you know, all of my friends were boys basically when I was growing up, especially when I was a teenager. And so I would play things like um, AD&D. So I was really into Dungeons and Dragons and I was an elf ranger. And so I was very into nature, I was very pagan and, you know, we would spend just hours and, and there was, you know, one of the most upsetting moments of my life was when the parents stepped in and said that I could no longer sleep over with the, the boys and they couldn't really say why because they didn't want to introduce the question of sex and it wouldn't have been sex, right? But they didn't want to say it's because she's a girl and we don't want our pubescent boys 
staying over the night, whereas previously we'd had sleepovers and play, stayed up all night and played Dungeons and Dragons. And I just remember this really, you know, very distinct feeling of like injustice, you know, like the kind of pure injustice you feel when you're a teenager and, or, you know, maybe we were 12 or I don't know the exact age, right? Like it was a particular moment where it became untenable. And, you know, I, this sort of unfairness of it. And I, I really did think like, you know, and, and if someone had said at that point, like, would you rather be a boy? I would have said yes immediately, you know, and I, I wore like men's clothes quote unquote, until I was 23. I was very, very, very masculine in that sense, like total tomboy. And I I didn't want to be in any way like a kind of feminine sexual person or anything like that. I just kind of refused participation in that um, because I wanted to be like my male friends. And they were all like, they had long hair and they were in bands and, you know, they were kind of like nerdy middle-class boys, the kind who like would have like prog music and stuff. And, you know, and... I don't know. I just remember this this moment of unfairness, not being able to play this game that I that I really loved, and it was talking about unfairness. I found I found this. I don't know if I found it so funny. I don't know. I was reading out another tweet earlier, and just in hysterics. So if I start laughing, I apologize. Um, Higher, thanks for the quick delivery. Love the leggings. Although you did nothing wrong, I have decided to give you a negative <laughs> one star review to teach you that the universe is arbitrary and unfair. Sometimes not everything goes our way in this world and we have to learn to deal with it. Kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> your, your recollection of it was actually pretty spot on. Pretty spot yeah. on. I thought it was so yeah. funny. So funny. But yeah, <laughs> it is, um, puberty is, is, is like such a, such a tricky one. I remember this other excruci- excruciating moment in relation to this, which I was thinking about the other day. You know, when you involuntarily recall these moments of shame, most of your, you know, memories from childhood are like this. And I, so I used to do judo, which I, which is great. I love judo. It was, you know, not in any good way. Like it was just some local crappy thing. And, and, you know, but it was really fun. And, you know, you have to wear like this white outfit. Like I think it's called a G or a G or something. Uh, maybe a G. I don't know. And, Anyway, and I remember there was this moment where they were saying that um, girls had to wear uh, a T-shirt under their um, judo outfit. And I, I was like, why? And because it was such an embarrassing question, because they, because the adults didn't know how to respond, because they didn't want to say, well, because girls develop breasts or whatever, and we can't have, you know, and, you know that you have to wear something extra, unlike the boys. You know, because I didn't understand, and but what you can feel in those moments, I think, is the is the sh- the embarrassment of the adults, which is so confusing to you, because you think you've done something wrong, and therefore you feel like this sort of sense of shame, but you don't know why. And it was only later that I realised that, oh yeah, God, of course they, you know, they were just trying to tell girls that they had to wear it a shirt because they they have breasts or they will be developing breasts and and you know I just remember just like this feeling of like embarrassment of like having asked this stupid question because I didn't understand their response and I knew that I'd said something that had caused them like to feel discomfort I don't know strange things I was going to say something about about motherhood and um it's interesting you know the various waves of feminism um and, you know, certain things that are pointed out by feminism, I think, are obviously accurate, but that, that I think the sort of commoditized contemporary issues and also that the experience of people may be born after about 1985, <laughs> which, you know, it's very mm-hmm. different, different from people who've been, you know, born earlier. But there does seem to be this like real 
in let's say a contemporary movement like that sort of lean in feminism a real inbaked disgust for motherhood and for mothers um mm-hmm. we see as well this sort of like i think push to commoditize motherhood which again like i just think it's it's really it's really horrible and this i think a lot of people you know my age and older and younger facing this sort of thing of like motherhood is very un- undervalued motherhood is sort of not talked about motherhood is is you know just a, a, a nothing behind closed doors piece of crap and or you should be just focusing on your career obviously and career this career that and um I've got friends who are uh, stay-at-home mums who feel horrendously kind of like disrespected and things like that but I think there is this like inbuilt like sort of like just pre- pretend it's not there or kind of disgust um and I think it's to do with like an unhandled resentment on this more sort of primordial level against mothers, which again, contingently, mothers tend to be women. Um, so it takes this sort of like feminine thing. But um, yeah, it's something that really yeah. riles me about contemporary feminism. Oh, no, completely. I mean, I think, you know, the Jacqueline Rose book on mothers is very good on this, actually, in terms of the mothers being this kind of repository, universal repository for blame, basically. And, you know, all the ills of the world in a way kind of placed in this way. And like the mother is like this this figure who in a way isn't allowed to enjoy as well. And she talks about the pleasure of breastfeeding, which is kind of taboo in some ways. And it's very interesting at the kind of level of desire, actually, and the desire of the mother, not in the sense of what the child thinks it is, but the actual desire of the mother, you know, which Rose thinks is kind of foreclosed, basically, in certain ways that society thinks of the mother, right? Like the mother is always self-sacrificing, but it's also somehow... To responsible and to blame but but in relation to contemporary situation oh my god yes I think you know the the push towards this kind of um childless lifestyle thing is insane like I, I think the backlash is coming and I think it's going to be massive I think it's already here to some extent I think the the sort of trad position basically that a lot of people are, are you know moving towards I mean it's hard to get a sense because a lot of this is all very online but I I think yeah you're going to have um a massive split between a kind of liberal metropolitan elite who are largely childless, um, who are, you know, use dating apps and, you know, drink a lot and so on and delay having children. And when they do, um, they might outsource it, which is also a source of deep horror. And I think the push towards surrogacy and these things are, it's absolutely horrific. Like I think the, the cost of, of that in terms of the emotional, um, you know awfulness of women who are you know often extremely poor obviously in other countries who are bearing other people's children in the west is just you know and I I think basically this is why one of the reasons why we need to um, have a sense of the tragic which is to say not everything is for everyone and this is very hard with the politics of desire that we were talking about because you know it's like I want x I want a child, therefore I should have a child. It's like, no, like there has to be a way culturally and socially that we can say it's not for everybody and not everybody will have a child and you don't get, you don't just get what you want. And in fact, if you want a career, for example, your chances of having a child later on are extremely diminished and you don't just get to buy one and 
fuck up someone else's life because you you want something so I I'm, I feel very very strongly about this and I, I think mothers are treated you know absolutely appallingly and I you know at the same time as they're kind of fetishized and you know I I think it's a it's a symptom of a culture that is in decline you know that doesn't have a sense of its own future and in a way has become so nihilistic that it doesn't want to continue and if we admit if we said that fine you know but I think these kind of the consumerist solution to the problem of children is like one of the most horrific things that we can possibly imagine I think it's so so much what you're saying um first of all like the the denial of like the libidinal investment of the mother and her child is really hilarious and um the loads of my friends who've had children like the guys are sort of experiencing kind of like oh my god I'm not getting any sex. Like, what the fuck? Because it does get to a point where, you know, there's a photo of my, my sister. I've got a nephew who's so cute. And they live in Spain, came over last summer. And there's a photo of them at the beach. I hope my sister will never listen to this more her husband. He would kill me if I said this. But anyway, um, that he, that there's the three of them. And the, the sort of scene that's captured is the kid being all cute. My sister really kind of looking at the child. And then her husband sort of behind being like, <laughs> you know. And obviously there's a the thing of a lot of men don't want to have children, especially, you know, how our contemporary political economy has changed the economy of marriage and how, let's say, if you're a very high valued man, like you're less likely to want to get married because of certain things. Um, and you give up a lot. Like you have to want to want your your wife's or your partner's wanting of their child at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, and then also what you're saying about the commoditization of, of motherhood. And the fact is, it's one thing that literally it's it's oblivion as such, in a sense, like it is literally oblivion. It's the it's the material portal to nothingness. You know, sorry, that was a bit graphic. But, very um, beautiful. But, 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 but the point being that like. So, so we sort of like sanitize it and, and treat it in such a way to try to commoditize it. But as you say, like surrogacy, and I know lots of people who are interested in surrogacy, is A, very expensive, but B, it's not neutral to just give birth and hand over a child. Like the, motherhood is extremely tragic. And obviously what, what we get is instead of recognizing the universality, the portal to the universal, that motherhood's tragic. It often involves miscarriage and aborted births and births that never were and difficult births and death and near death and all this kind of stuff and often what we do is we we can like in this commoditized world those experiences are content rendered contingent as in i went was this special person who went through this experience therefore i am an, i'm an unblemished angel because somehow suffering renders me an undivided subject and therefore i'm a lady with a new york times column and i'm going to pontificate what this means rather than it being you know, like this is not about you. This is about the nature of humanity, subjectivity as such. And we, the, the, the pivot of wokeness and why it's so annoying is it takes something that can be a portal to a collective as long as it's not seen as like, I am this and therefore I have to be treated in a special way or I can give you special information. Rather, we are all divided. Mm. And, and, for instance, the fact that I am the kind of woman who is able to have a New York Times column or millions of dollars is not, you know, transcendentally cured of the human condition. So therefore, we should recognize that the system is not worth it. But yes. One of the things I kind of notice is that there is this desire to live a kind of princess life, uh, an image of a princess life in which the princess is this kind of landed aristocrat, but one who is 
a Disney princess and therefore kind of disconnected from any sort of of community or social or political role. So the princess who gets whatever they want, but doesn't owe anything to anybody. And there's this image, I think, of aristocrats, and it comes in part from the fact that we live in the aftermath of a bourgeois revolution and the bourgeois attitude to the aristocracy, which is that it's just a bunch of people who sit around and do nothing, mm. right? There's this desire on the part of a lot of people to, to be an aristocrat in the pejorative French revolutionary sense of just to be someone who is free to sit around and indulge desires hedonistically, as I think many people in that merchant class who were very focused on working hard all the time and every day, how they, that's how they thought of the landed aristocrat as someone who sat around and did nothing. And that's what they want to do. They want to sit around and do nothing. But there's another Im image of what it means to, to be a landed aristocrat. And it's this image of embeddedness in a community of being someone who takes care of an estate and takes care of the people on the estate and makes sure that there is order on that estate and that that order is good and just and embodies the various virtues. You know, that is at least what that system was aiming to produce. Of course, in practice, it, it carries with it all of the exploitative characters of all other systems that have existed among human beings. But there was a kind of image of what the landed aristocrat was supposed to be that involved duties to protect and care for. And in the same way, when we talk about the decision about whether or not to be a parent, it's very much a decision about whether your life is about indulging your desires with no limit, or whether your life is about caring for, I think, other people and taking care of other people and whether that's something you should be doing. Now, of course, being a parent is not the only way to care for other people and to have a role which embeds you in, in caring for other people. But a lot of the antinatalism now is not just about wanting to care for people in a different way, but wanting to be freed from the obligation to care for anybody but the self and to be free from any duty to anything apart from one's own desires. And I think that that's really the, uh, th there's a view now that the mother is a sucker because the mother is someone who abandoned their own desires so that they could take care of another person. And that in so doing, uh, they, they prove themselves unworthy of the mantle of a free individual who pursues their own ends. They prove themselves un unworthy of a kind of ubermensch mantle that we increasingly exalt. And what a short-sighted and narrow view that is. And I think it, it leads to so much despair among the people in cities who live like this because they, they have so much contempt for anything that would give meaning that all they can do is plunge themselves into an abyss of, of catharsis. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I like, um, I think just to provocatively slightly extend that, I think actually it's extremely psychologically difficult, if not damaging, for most women in particular, but also men not to have children. I think it should be relatively rare. Uh, and I say this as someone who's basically on the other side of being <laughs> reproduction. And because I think that actually um, to not have children um, is actually uh, very difficult in some ways. Like you have to be quite strange to be able to kind of deal with it. Um, and this is why I think you have in societies where you have largely men, but also women who have social roles that are tied to being childless. So, for example, when you have more 
that the monastery or the nunnery are more um, socially encoded within a whole system such that you're able to deal, let's say, with men who aren't or and women who aren't for whatever reason and obviously lots of women who did have children were shoved into nunneries and there's a whole system of cruelty um that's horrific particularly in Ireland around this but you know blah 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 but let's say um at the level of those people who um don't for whatever set of reasons have children or are not going to have children they precisely have a social function or a social role that um affords them uh I don't know, like a, a spiritual meaning. Um, and I think this is often why philosophers or, or, or religious people don't have children. Like, well, there's, there's, there's reasons why they don't. But I actually think it's not psychologically healthy for most people not to have children. I think most people benefit psychologically from having children um, if they're able to. Obviously, sometimes people are not able to for medical reasons or they have problems or whatever, you know or they don't meet the right person or so on. But I think, I, I, basically, I don't think it should be encouraged as a mainstream lifestyle option. And I say this as someone who doesn't have children, which is paradoxical. No, I, and it's interesting, the philosophy angle and people I know who are involved in philosophy who, you know, um, maybe have decided not to and stuff. But um, I think that a lot of anguish is going to come about. Yeah. Covid, obviously, eight, eighteen, two years, or maybe it's going to be three years in in the lifespan of a female's ability to have children is is an eternity. So, so many people have lost the opportunity to meet people or to have children. Um, I felt that, you know, uh, it's kind of tragic. And then with this new strange post about twenty sixteen, but probably the erosion had happened before that. Um, denigration of the sexual in favor of a commoditized, asexualized. I think OnlyFans is sex without sex, you know, sex yeah. without the tarrying with the subjectivity of the other. It's it's yeah. coke without caffeine. So we've replaced the messy chaos of falling in love and how that relates to sexuality for a lot of people. Um, it's much more difficult. But the issue of parenthood has not gone away. And I think there's going to be a lot of tragic sadness. It's interesting. I'm doing a film mm. at the moment, an Irish language film. It's the back, backdrop is um, this thing called the sacking of Baltimore. And it's about a mother who loses her children. And she goes on sort of, uh, she tries to um, make the money she requires to send for a ransom in order to get them back. Um, but I won't tell you what happens at the end. Dun, dun, dun. Um, but I realized it was like, oh, this is me dealing with the fact that potentially I might not be able to have children because of, well, A, I have a health condition. So my younger sister has decided she who also has the health conditions, the genetic one, that she's not going to have children because it's not fair. But I still, I want children. I don't know if I can have it. So I'm sort of dealing with this. Do I want to or not? I was in a six-year relationship with somebody who didn't want children, but I really wanted to be with him, but he didn't want children. And then even knowing that I might not be able to have children and it might be a really silly thing to, to have them, but we're talking about desires and not giving way in terms of your desire, mm. you still have to go after the potential of making it happen, knowing that it might not. But also, in addition to that, there are all the wider societal issues. And so, you know, of COVID, of socioeconomic problems, of a lack of stability there, precarity, and of, you know, trying to do something different or, as uh, people say, you know, live within Zeit, you know, uh, not Zeit, I mean the Geist. <laughs> Sorry, get the one where, you know, the spirit of the age. If, you're, if you are somebody who's committed to living within spirit as such in the Hegelian sense, obviously it means it's 
it's more difficult to exist in a normal substantive material way but yeah and I know so many people in this position and you know there's loads of different mm-hmm. factors but it's just a sort of like repression if repression is the thing of the truth of that messy desire not the fact not to repress for instance repression isn't about you know necessarily oh somebody's wearing you know no, women's not women not able to show their nipples on instagram that's fucking irrelevant except it's relevant in the fact that of course nipples are charged because that's how we, babies bond with their mothers and how they're fed you know of course it's not neutral hello we are humans we're not animals but repression is about repressing something that's beyond just like bare sexuality it's about repressing truths that mm. are too painful to do with the oblivion of our existence yeah well said no i mean i've spoken to quite a lot of women who say the same thing about the past year and a half two years um yeah i think i think you're right this question of this i don't know this specter of the of the tragic i suppose which i think as a society we have omitted largely along with myth and all these things you know they they don't function you know uh, forms of acceptance are more or less um eradicated by a society that says you can get what you want whenever you want it you know then there's no there's no place for the tragic there's no place for and the tragic is just a personal failure you know it's like oh you didn't have Mm. children well you know you didn't make enough money, so you didn't have your own house. So, you know, obviously you're more likely to be able to... We talked about sort of a quote-unquote metropolitan elite, but obviously having children also requires a certain amount of financial means, although it's sort of almost two extremes because, of course, in other sectors of society, people just have, you know, there's different issues at play, let's say, but um, like middle-class motherhood, quote-unquote, you know, mm. <laughs> might require uh, a certain amount of, of money, sort of, of course. But yeah, I think it's I think it's really sad. And it's so strange, these sort of utopian visions of motherhood, which seem to be to do with A, obviously for me, utopias that can exist anywhere, either beyond death or on earth, are totalitarian, fascistic, capitalistic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and obviously can be commoditized. You can close the gap of life by doing this thing or buying this thing or listening to this lecture or whatever. But to do with, like, you know, so in psychoanalysis, you know, you don't take somebody at their word, you take them at their word, you know, (laughs) not the meaning or the intention, but what they're actually saying. And, you know, we don't take seriously what, for instance, the emergence of these kinds of, I don't know if they're movements yet, but they seem to be moving towards movements, say about how these people were brought up and what it was like to be a child at this time and how this led to a desire to annihilate that experience, you know. Um, yeah, and I think this this personal, this political, has sort of led to this stuff. I see so much intersection between those two types of pride we talked about on the A side, the kind of stoic idea that you can just defy the conditions, and on the other side, this idea that all of the desires that you do have and that you will have fulfilled are good and uh, and not a problem. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing a lot of it is is people people trying to say that they can just have a life that's meaningful without any of the things that we would typically associate with meaning. So on the one hand, asserting that meaning can exist without any of the usual material or social conditions which provide for its existence. 
And then on the other hand, a denial that uh, meaning at all is even necessary or possible. So you have on the one side people who will say there is no meaning, nothing matters. And on the other side, people who will say, well, of course, everything matters, even though there's there's nothing in their life or in a lot of people's lives that would give a sense of meaning. And so there's a kind of dogmatic assertion of meaning in the absence of any of the infrastructure of meaning. And on the other side, a, a denial of meaning because the infrastructure of meaning is, is at this point so foreign and so remote that it can't really be conceived of. And it's such a peculiarly contemporary problem because for most people at most times in history, it's been quite obvious that life matters. It's been very obvious. And it's only for, for those of us now who are in this particular kind of strange seesawing. You know, existentialism as a school of thought is very, very young. And at most points in history, nobody would have thought we would have needed anything like that. Mm. You know, why would we need people to go, well, why don't you kill yourself? Well, because <laughs> I have people to take care of, damn it, and they need me. You know, it's quite obvious why you don't kill yourself, really. It's very obvious. Uh, and why do we need existentialists to, to write whole books about why not? Why don't you kill yourself? It's obvious why you don't, because other people matter, and you're there for them. You know, and, and we've gotten so far away from that, that, that now we have entire schools of thought about exploring questions which, which did not previously exist. And which we really shouldn't have to ask. I know. And this is the thing, you know, we talked about being reasonable. And I think Nina mentioned reason there. And I think, you know, like the logical song from Supertramp, that reason is sort of like often in the sort of 68, post-68 thing, like, oh, logic, reason, duh. Like we, in this sort of like faux psychoanalytic Jungianism of like overcome logic and reason with the subconscious or whatever, like child, like, no, 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 no. Like reason is reasonable. You know, reason by definition, takes into consideration like the unconscious and all these things and our childish desires and our impulses and our drivers and being reasonable. I think the adjective reasonable shows that reason itself is not just this like logic, order, blah, 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 you know. And the fact as well that being reasonable is so offensive is something, again, that it's like, what the hell have we done to get to the point where just being reasonable we worry about self, we have to self-censor. And like, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about this podcast and us uniting and some, if somebody said on social media the other day about, um, you know, us as a podcast and, oh, this person was this person once and this person did this once and this person said this once and this person, which wasn't even said, but it's like, how have we got to a stage where that is considered reasonable or acceptable? But being reasonable where it's like, a, that's all bollocks and lies. And B, people change and you stop working with one person when maybe you don't agree with them or, you know, like, hello, what? Totally. I mean, you know, the, the idea that pointing out that perhaps there might be a conflict of rights or that, you know, desire doesn't always map onto everyone else's desire. Like the fact that you you get punished for pointing this out <laughs> is an uh, indicator of, of something going quite badly wrong, like the Liberal Project. Um, you know, not that I'm fully committed to the Liberal Project, but, you know, it does have its advantages when it comes to certain things, like the fact that people will disagree and about the best way to live, um, you know, and that people have competing needs and, and so on. Um, and to point them out is, in a way, the mark of political maturity. Like to accept that, that people are different and they have different needs. And you know, to point them out <laughs> is to respect the person 
to respect the protected group because the protected group is also a divided subject like all the rest of us and therefore is a human being. Exactly. And and no one in that sense has any more right than anyone else. It's like, you know, everyone can say their thing and everyone can say, I want this and I want that. But there has to be some negotiation. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very fundamental. Your parents have you because they needed you. And then you're born needing them. And those <laughs> needs don't always align because what you need from them and what they needed in having you aren't exactly the same. Bastards. You know, it just starts from there and it goes and goes. And we, we have to find a way to live with each other and to meet each other's <laughs> needs and be there for each other. That's what the hard work of politics is. And the hard work of, of having a family, which is itself, I think, a kind of political project. Yeah. Legitimating, you could, you could do a whole thing about legitimating the authority of parents. Parental authority is a kind of type of political legitimacy. I'd love to do that at some point in my life. Just spend a <laughs> while thinking about that. Yeah. But it, it really is. It's all about, all about that. And we've just gotten, we've gotten so mixed up. And there are so many different ways to have a role that involves helping other people and taking care of other people. There are lots of different kinds of roles that people can have like that. And I think part of, part of the sadness is that our society creates so many jobs which alienates people so much from the ways in which they are helpful. Uh, or could be helpful, and pay them to do things that don't feel in any way to be making a difference for somebody else. And that's another reason why parenting becomes important when you're in a job that doesn't make a difference, doesn't feel like it involves taking care of other people. Parenting is, is the last way for a person to feel like they can make a difference for another person. If your job doesn't let you do it, parenting is the thing. And the last thing, left at that stage. And capitalism having created jobs that confer no meaning on so many people is now out to take away from people their last vestige of meaning in many cases. And I think that is so unfathomably cruel. And to have people who call themselves left-wing cheerlead that appalls me. It's honestly, it's one of the most, the veneer of, of liberal civility papers over like an extreme violence, you know, and it, it, it's extreme to tear this away from people is violent and cruel. And it's done in a sort of Mary Poppinsy, how lovely, lovely, we're all going towards a rainbow future. And that, that, that feeling and that anger has to go somewhere. And it's, it's difficult to recognize it when we don't even read the situation correctly. We don't even have a handle on what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't want to be like kind of like scaremongery about it or anything, but it's like, I think, I think it's being felt by people. It's subjective, subjectively, you know, people feel it. Yes, the market is the death of meaning. And now we've got to cut it off because we're over an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Bye-bye.